Point. How are we doing? So good to be with you, everyone at the campuses. Welcome to church, but welcome to 2022. You guys ready for it? I'm ready. I'm ready for this year. Uh, but before we jump completely into this year, we just want to take a moment as a church to pause and to look back and to celebrate God's faithfulness in 2022. God did some incredible things through us and with our church. Can we celebrate all that God did? And we've actually created an annual report, just a snapshot of some of what God did. And if uh, if you want to, go ahead, jump in there, take a look at that later today or this week. I'm telling you, you will be blown away about what God did in a single year. But today we're starting this new series uh, called Master Class. And maybe this is a concept you're familiar with, maybe not, but here's what a master class is. It's a class given to students of a particular discipline by an expert of that discipline. And I'm telling you, I was checking out the website this past week. It is wild. Like you can really learn how to shoot from Steph Curry. Steph Curry is teaching a class on how to shoot. A lot of you that have played with me have asked if I took this class. <laughs> I didn't. I, I just, you know, <laughs> it's a lot of years working on that jump shot. But no, seriously, that's the big idea. They, they find the best in the world to teach on this specific discipline. But what we want to do in this series is to actually say, you know what? Jesus actually taught the original master class. And it wasn't just based on a discipline, but on life itself. And it's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And it's an amazing teaching, a manifesto, what God left heaven to bring to us of how to live. To help us wrestle with some questions for everyone of what is this? What does it look like to truly follow Jesus? And I think this is a question we got to wrestle with both for non-Christians and Christians alike. And the big concept we're going to look at today on those first few verses is this. How to be fully human. Do you know what I mean by that? Like, how do we become fully human? How do we live with purpose? You know, those, how do we live uh, deeply satisfied? All of those aches and wants and desires where we never feel like we're quite there. What does it look like to be truly fulfilled? What does it look like to live passionate lives that are filled with fulfillment? That's what Jesus is going to be talking about in these next few chapters as we work through these next few months. But I do want to make an important note before we get rolling. This sermon is not a set of teachings that say, do this and then become a Christian. It's actually the opposite. It's, it's because you are a Christian, now you have an opportunity to live a life like this. I love the way Eugene Peterson says it when he talks about Scripture. He says, Scripture does not present us with a moral code and tell us, live up to this. Nor does it set out a system of doctrine and say, think like this and you will live well. Here it is. Rather, the biblical way is to tell a story and in the telling, invite Live into this. This is what it looks like to be a human in the God-made and God-ruled world. This is what is involved in becoming and maturing as a human being. What a way to start off the year. And here's the challenge. As we work through the Sermon on the Mount, here's the challenge. To live as a student of Jesus. Like, take it for the fact that maybe, just maybe, that Jesus was the smartest human that ever walked the planet. Maybe he has something to say about our lives and how we could truly live them as, you know, the creator of, of all of us. To take his words and not to just hear them and learn them, but to apply them. This is a sermon that the world desperately needs to see us living it out. All right, so that's what we're going to be looking at today. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. There's a little bit of setup here, all right? So take a look at this. It says, One day, as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down. And his disciples gathered around him, and he began to teach them. So hold this for a second. 
So Jesus just started his ministry. Now he's going through town to town. And he says he went up onto the mountainside. Maybe you've wondered the question, why do they call it the Sermon on the Mount? I bet there's a really cool backstory of that. It's because he taught it on a mountain. Some things aren't as cool and maybe left unsaid. But then it says his disciples. Another word that maybe you've read and kind of have an idea, but it's really kind of just this biblical word. What does it mean? A disciple is a student. That's really what that word means. It's a student. It's a learner. It's an apprentice. Someone that would have followed after a teacher and imitated them in every single way. So it says the disciples came around and they sat down and he began to teach. And what he kicks off here is what are called the Beatitudes. And this is really uh, just a Latin word that means blessed are. Blessed are. Happy are. Deeply satisfied are. So turn to the person next to you and, and say, blessed are you in this new year. Now turn to the person you decided not to pick <laughs> and to say, 23 has your name on it. No, but he lays out this, this series of, of statements. And it's kind of bookend with, with this phrase. He starts with it and he ends with it and everything in between fills it. He says that the kingdom of heaven is theirs. The kingdom of heaven. This is a message that Jesus came right off the bat. It's what he talks about more than anything. It's this kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Look at one chapter earlier in Matthew chapter 4. It says, from then on, Jesus began to preach, repent of your sins and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. So what these teachings are is an introduction, a welcoming of this new kingdom. And what he's going to show right off the bat is this kingdom that Jesus came to bring is very different than any and every other kingdom the world has ever known. The big thing being here that the kingdom of God right now in this time after Jesus, that the kingdom of heaven is in the midst of all these other kingdoms, all these other empires. And right now it can seem like, man, it seems like the kingdom of heaven is small. It seems like these other kingdoms are being built up. But Jesus is saying, no, the kingdom of God has come that I've brought it. It's near. And there will come a day where all these other kingdoms fall and there will only be one that remains. And that is the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes into this, this list here of he just works through, here's the kind of people that are welcomed into the kingdom of God. Here are the kind of people that want to be in the kingdom of God. And I just want to say right off the bat, we're going to jump into it and we're going to read it. And it's a big chunk here. But I want you to brace yourself. It is very different. When you talk about kingdoms, when you talk about succeeding, when you talk about a good life, they are not almost, they are exactly opposite of everything that we've been taught, of what success and what the good life really embodies. It is an upside down kingdom, but Jesus says, now this is what it looks like to be fully human. This is what it looks like to walk in my kingdom and to be deeply satisfied. All right, so take a look at this. We're gonna read it in its entirety. Jesus says, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. And God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. And God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. And God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you're my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. Like I said, very different. To start out a sermon like this, imagine all the crowds have gathered. Everyone is coming near. He could say anything. Like this is usually, it makes me think of like, 
class presidents in middle school, like they just promise everything, like everyone's gonna get their own vending machine. It's gonna be amazing. No more teachers. You do whatever you want. And we're like, yeah, we're gonna vote for that guy. It's not true. But usually a leader that's trying to gain prominence speaks of these things that everyone wants. But Jesus steps up and he says things like, now my kingdom is for the poor and for the humble, for the merciful, for the meek. Very, very different kingdom. And what we're going to do is we're just going to work through these one by one. But before we do, I just want to give us a little bit, uh, some handles on this to apply to every single one of these. Okay, so before we dive in, please know all of these are for all of us. Maybe you were going through that list and you were like kind of treating it like a menu, like, okay, okay. I'll take a little bit of humble on the side. Peace is kind of my thing. Uh, You can save the poor. We'll keep that over there. The suffering, not so much. But this is for all of us, all of us in the kingdom of God. These are for us and they're actually blessings. And then the second one is this. They are received supernaturally. Maybe you read it and you were starting to even feel some of that of like, you know, people have told me I'm naturally humble or kind or merciful. But the truth is no one has these to this extent naturally. All of these are received supernaturally. We have no hope of living these out without the spirit of God embodied, like taking us on to live this life. So no one has them, but at the same time, everyone can. And then the final thing is this, order matters. As we work through each one of these one by one, you'll notice that they build on one another, that they're all interconnected. And you'll see that as we progress through each one. But now we're going to dive deeper one by one, starting with the first one. Are you guys ready for this? That's a big setup. Me too. Starts with God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. What a way to start out. And I want you to think about this of like, when a kingdom comes, who does it come to? It comes to other kings. It comes to the elites. It comes, it welcomes in these people that are on the upper part of society. But Jesus actually comes in and he says, no, 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 the poor. The poor are welcomed into my kingdom. And what's fascinating is that term poor here, what we translate, it's, it's, the most poor. It's the strongest use of the word. The picture you get of this kind of poor is someone that is on the side of the road begging for money. Someone that is crouched down, lifting up. Someone that is completely dependent on others for survival. It's only by their generosity that they get to live. It's that kind of poor. Think about how different this was from the religious elite. Jesus even tells a story about this, how the religious elite had become so puffed up that they forgot of who they truly were. He tells this story once of there's this Pharisee in a temple and he steps up to make this prayer and he stands up in the center and he's looking around and he says, God, thank you that I am not like any of these people. Wow, are they messed up. Thank you for lifting me up out of this mess and not being like him, especially him. And you just get this feel of he's puffing himself up, but he's pushing other people down. This is what was known. But in this same story, Jesus says that there's another guy. And he's not in the center. He's not up front. He's actually all the way in the back. He's on the fringes. And he can't even make his way. He's just standing there one foot in. And he can't even look up. His head's down. And he begins to just beat his chest. And he says, God, be merciful to me. He's beating the words out of himself to get him out, for I am a sinner. Just this short, beautiful prayer. And Jesus says, you know who was reconciled to God? It wasn't the Pharisee. It wasn't the one that was puffed up. It was the one that came in poor. It was the one that admitted who he was and trusted that I had what he needed. You see, the truth is that we are all poor. Some of you are like, speak for yourself, hippie. I'm actually doing pretty well. Um, Maybe if you cut your hair, you could do a little bit better yourself. Um, I hear you. Good for you. Glad you're doing well. Um, Poor in the sense that we have nothing to offer to God. And when you come to that place, it says that they come to the realization 
that they're poor and they're in need of God. We come to different realizations. We, ex we all experience the poorness of our spirit, that longing, that ache, and our desire, but we come to a different realization. One that that poverty can be taken away with a little bit of money, with a little bit more sex, with a little bit more of that. Then I will be able to deal with the poverty of my soul. Jesus says, no, you'll just keep longing for more and more and more. The only way to experience the richness of God is to come in as a poor beggar. And then when we take that position, the lowliest of the lows, God pulls down and reaches in and grabs us and welcomes us into the kingdom of God. You can be rich by all the markers of the world, but still be poor in spirit. Jesus is the only one that can deal with the poverty of your soul. Let him. Come on, we're just getting warmed up. That's one. We still got a bunch. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who mourn. Think about this. Most of our lives are spent trying to avoid mourning. We don't want to be sad. We avoid things that could bring sadness. But here it says that it's welcomed. Welcomed. Well, what should we be sad about? What should we be mourning? Once again, it builds on one another. We mourn sin. We mourn sin. And it's only when we come to God, when we show how empty we are before him, that we're exposed. And we see the emptiness of our souls and we see the poverty and we see the sin. God's perfect light and holiness shows us of all of it and we mourn. Mourn for ourselves, mourn for our friends, our families. We mourn the whole world. I'm like, this is so hard and we're sad. But it's not a mourning, like an earthly mourning, a worldly mourning. It is a supernatural mourning. One that does not leave us in despair or worry. That's why we're so afraid to mourn because who's gonna be there to catch us? What, if we let go of this thing, what's gonna be on the other side? And God says, no. When you mourn, you will be comforted. It's this idea that as you're going through life and as you come into the kingdom and you see God's perfection and you see just how wicked and messed up you are and you think about this, you wrestle with this of like, I was so bad that the son of God had to die for me. And you are wrecked and you are mourning, but at the same time you are comforted. God says, don't stay there. Because yes, you were so bad that Jesus had to die for you, but at the same time you are so loved that God was willing to die for you. Here's the big thing. M mourning, sadness, is not something that we need to avoid, to suppress, or to pretend that is not there. Because it is only then when we begin to see the gaps, when we begin to see the perfect world that God wants, his righteous world, the one that is filled with justice, it's only when we see the brokenness of it is when we're able to actually do something about it. So here's the challenge. We need to befriend sadness. Right now, sadness is calling and you're not picking up, sending it straight to voicemail, which I don't blame you because I don't answer when anybody calls either. But when sadness calls, we need to be able to deal with it. God is close to the brokenhearted. God can do things in our mourning that he can only do there, but we have to turn to him. God is not only close to the brokenhearted, Jesus became the brokenhearted. Look at this, the way Isaiah talks about him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. He held on to that, but at the same time, he was comforted and experienced the best life humanly possible, did more, was fully satisfied. Get to know sadness in the kingdom of God, because that's where you'll be comforted. Then he says, God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. It's important to see here that the humble, this is not, um, we kind of misrepresent what it means to be humble. A lot of times being humble is mean like I'm kind of easygoing. I let things just kind of roll off my back. Um, humility is not that. Humility is not weakness. 
Humility is having a right view of yourself. Once again, we cannot have a right view of ourselves until we see ourselves in the kingdom of God. Until we see all that had to be done for us to be welcomed in. Until we have been emptied and been filled by his spirit. Until we have mourned our brokenness and been comforted. Then we get this real picture of who we are. And we become humble. We no longer see the world as us being better than other people. Our sins may look differently, but we understand the power of sin. We understand it knows no ends. And where it may affect you differently, I understand. I actually see myself in you. I am humble. I am emptying myself to become a servant to all. The other thing that I want to hit on here, too, is did you notice how the humble will get the earth? They inherit it. They inherit it. They do not earn it. They do not conquer it. They do not overpower someone from it. They inherit it. It's this idea that when you're going through life and you have that picture of like, I can't be a nice guy. Nice guys finish last. I can't be humble. Someone's going to walk over me. I need to force myself into this position. God's saying, no, you don't. That it is the humble who inherit the earth. Think about Jesus. They all had this idea that there was going to be this military come up, that Jesus was going to gather together some soldiers and they were going to walk into Rome and they were going to take over. They didn't come to take part. They came to take over and they're waiting. They're sharpening their knives, daggers, whatever they fought with. They're sharpening everything. And Jesus is like, you guys got the wrong idea. At the same time, though, Jesus did overcome the world, but not with a show of power, but with a powerful show of humility. Think about the humility that it took to humble himself, to empty himself, to go to a cross and die to mere humans when it just a word. He could call on angels to end the whole thing to stop it, but he humbles himself and follows through with it. This is the same thing for me and you. We are to be humble and to trust that the world that is coming, that even when the wicked win, even when we see things of like, I think God's kingdom is getting smaller. I think these kingdoms are growing. I don't think he should be there. I don't think she should be there. God needs to do something. Trust in this. It's already been decided. The kingdom of God is yours. The humble will inherit the earth. All other kingdoms will fall. One will remain. And it's the one he welcomes you into. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. Think about this. Think about hungering and thirsting for something. Like, can you think, I mean, I mean, your mouth is just like salvating. Like you just want it. When you want something that bad, when you're thirsting for it, that is all that you can think about. When I was thinking about this, it, it reminded me of growing up playing outside during the summer, just basketball game after basketball after basketball, and you would be so hot drenched, you would need some water. But you didn't have a lot of choices, right? Because you can't just go in and out the house. Once you go in, you're in. She's not air conditioning the whole world, all right? So where do you got to go? You got to go to the hose. Oh, I would thirst, thirst from the water from the hose. I can still taste the metal coming through. I'll probably be fine. I might be fine. I don't know. Um, but the picture here is this idea that we are driven by appetites. Our lives are centered around the most of them for the same few things. It is a hunger and a thirst to receive pleasure, to be happy, to find comfort. Most of our lives are built in that way. That's what we want. That's what we're geared toward. And we get a taste of it and we love it. Have you ever thought about why that is, though? Why do we hunger and thirst for those things? I'd say it's because we haven't dealt with the pain. We haven't dealt with the ache within us, but we did get a taste of something good. We got a taste of something that helped alleviate some of the pain there for a moment. And we cling to it and we look to it over and over and over again. Think about it like this. Think about going to a doctor's office and as soon as you walk through the doors, all you said was, hey, I'm experiencing a little bit of, a little bit of pain. And the doctor said, say no more. Take two of these every day, and it'll deal with the pain. 
and you're like, don't you want to have any questions? You don't want to run a check or, I don't know, CAT scan, uh, MRI, some other stuff that I've never heard of? He's like, no, no, just take this. It'll be fine. How long do I have to take them? Forever. You'd say, that's not a good doctor. But over and over again in our lives, we keep filling these same prescriptions, believing that we will be satisfied by things of pleasure. Thinking if we just get a little bit more money, a little bit more power, have a little bit more sex, then I will be satisfied. And Jesus says, you won't. You will hunger and thirst for the rest of your life because they are cheap substitutes. What Jesus says is to hunger and thirst for justice. Other translations say righteousness. What is that? A righteousness is just right standing with God and with people. Justice is to see that right standard applied to the earth. Jesus says, you're going to hunger and thirst for something? You want to be satisfied? Then give your life to this, to holiness, to becoming like Jesus, to, to, to living righteously. This is the only thing that won't numb it, but will actually get to the root of it. So many of us stopped doing those things that were bringing a little bit of joy, a little bit of happiness. Uh, they were fulfilling us a little bit. And we stopped those when we started following Jesus. But all we've been doing since is just avoiding those things, and we feel like we're starving. God did not take those things from you to leave you starving. He took those so that you could have something so much more. He wants to do surgery. He wants to remove those things completely and to plant new fruit. He wants you to desire and to thirst for the fruits of the Spirit. Think about that kind of life that completely satisfies to be eating a diet of love, of joy, of patience, of kindness, of gentleness, of self-control. You guys remember the story where Jesus is at the well and he's standing there and he's talking to this girl and she's going, she's like, he's, can you give me some water? And they're talking about water and she thinks they're really just talking about water. And he says, anybody that drinks of that well will be thirsty again this time tomorrow. But if you drink from the well that I offer, living water, you will be completely satisfied. It is the only thing and it is only found in Jesus. That is what's welcome to you in the kingdom of God. But what is your appetite leading you to? What brings you nourishment? Look, look at what Jesus said when they asked him. My nourishment comes from doing the will of God. My nourishment comes from the righteous, from justice. It comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. That's what he hungered and thirsted after and that's why he was satisfied. And that same thing is offered to you and to me. Look at the next one. God blesses those who are merciful for they will be shown mercy. Mercy. The big one here that I want to focus on is when we talk about mercy, we've got to talk about compassion. Compassion is the place where we just not only see a need, we feel convicted, but we are brought to a place of action. Brought to a place of action. This is what Jesus was talking about in the story of the Good Samaritan. Maybe you're familiar with this, but he tells the story of this man who's going into town and on his way, he gets beaten, robbed, stripped of his clothes, left on the side of the road for dead. And he says, three people see him. The first one that's walking down the road, he sees him at a distance and actually moves. He crosses the street. He's like, I don't have time for that. Um, I don't know what that is, but it's not my problem. And he keeps walking. Says the second person sees him doesn't cross over to the other side of the street. He walks up to him. You can tell he's feeling something, but he sees him, but he doesn't do anything. But he says that then there's a third person. The third person not only sees him, not only goes up, but he soothes his wounds. He places bandages on him. He pulls him out of the elements. He actually takes him to a hotel, puts him up, charges it all to his account, makes sure that he's okay. And Jesus says, which one of them was a good neighbor to this man? And they say, the one that has shown him mercy. And Jesus says, yes, now you go and do the same. To have compassion, to be in the kingdom of God, it means that everyone is extended mercy from the least of those to those at the top of our society. I know for me, it was, it's been a few years now, but I was actually on my way home and I stopped at a gas station right off here off uh, 86th Street by the Traders Point Plaza right there, that, that BP. 
and I uh, get out and I'm getting gas and I, I feel somebody coming up, walking up on me, you know? And so I turn to see who it is and it's a tall, slender guy, big mustache, trucker hat. And he says, hey, partner, I'm in a pickle. All right, I'll be honest with you. Um, I'm on my way up from down south, up north to Lafayette. I'm trying to see a vet. I got some sick calves with me, but I've lost my credit card. I need some money for gas to get up there and get back. Can you help me? Now, church, I'm from the west side of Indianapolis, okay? I know a setup when I see a setup. I know partially because my man is talking about calves, and I don't know a lot about farming, but he has no trailer, he has no calves, he has a Ford Taurus. But you know what? I'm convicted. I said, you know what? I can't give you any money, but if you need gas, pull your car around. I'll fill it up. He said, no, it really cash would be what would be helpful. I said, really? <laughs> I'm trying to be nice. Um, pull around. He said, no, okay, hold on. He goes to his car, pops the trunk, brings out a gas can that would, you would use to like fill up a lawnmower. He's like, okay, can you fill this up? And I was like, you know what? I'm gonna do my good deed. I do it. Give him the gas, don't say anything else. It's maybe a few months later. I show up, same gas station, I'm getting gas. I feel somebody walk up on me. Tall man, big mustache, <laughs> trucker hat. He said, hey partner, hate to bother you. I'm in quite the pickle. I got some sick calves. I'm trying to make my way up from the south to Lafayette. Lost my credit card. I don't even let him finish. I said, you've already done this to me. And he didn't hear me. He just keeps going. I said, man, you've already done this to me. He didn't even remember me. I was hurt. <laughs> he hears me, his eyes pop, and he just scurries away, he runs. And I was like, wow. Finish, fill up, I leave. I promise you. Six months later, <laughs> I'm at a gas station 45 minutes away from that one on the southeast side of town getting my gas, I feel the shadow. <laughs> Big mustache, trucker hat. He said, hey partner. I said, don't you even say anything about a pickle. No pickles. I said, this is the second time you've done this. I'm hot. That's about as hot as I get, the second time. And he once again just scurried away. I fill up my gas, I sit in the car, and it's like God dropped an anchor on me. And he was like, how did you miss it three times? Obviously there was something wrong with him. Obviously he needed something more than money or gas. But how did you treat him? You treated him like he was a problem. You tried to avoid him, you tried to push him out of the way. But what you've done to the least of these is what you've done to me. And I was just overwhelmed. And I promise you, I pray sometimes, God, just give me one more chance. I'm going to do whatever I need to do to these cattle to serve him, <laughs> get him back on the right road, trim his mustache. I'm going to do it all. <laughs> but to have compassion for one another. I mean, this is one of the markers of the early church. They had never seen a kingdom like this that was compassionate for their own, compassionate to their enemies. I mean, think about Stephen. He's the first martyr, Christian martyr, killed for his faith. As he's being stoned, people are literally hurling rocks at his face. Do you remember what he said? Father, don't hold their sins against them. He had mercy even into death. Where does he get that? From Jesus. Jesus, after being falsely accused, arrested, and sentenced to death, he's hanging on a cross between two criminals. And what does he say? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. That's the same kind of mercy we're supposed to take into this world. Imagine a world with that kind of mercy. That's the, that's the kind of kingdom we're talking about. Look at this. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. Hearts are pure. Pure. It's important to see how big of a deal the heart was in ancient times. The heart was where for everything came from, desires, motives, emotions, why you did things, which puts you in a pickle of your own when you see that the heart is also the most deceitful of all things. It is wicked amongst all things. I mean, look at what Jesus said about the heart in Matthew 15. 
He says, for from the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, and even slander. There's some good news. How am I supposed to get a pure heart if my heart is like that? Once again, it is a supernatural act that only God can do. Only God can deal with the wickedness of our heart, the darkness. It is when his spirit comes and finds a home in our heart that we become to be transformed from the inside out. But what can we do as a people in this kingdom, in the the now but not the not yet, we have to want these pure hearts so that we can see God, not just one day, but I want to see him right now. I don't know about you. Here's just a few things that we can do. Ache to see God. Ache to see God. There are things that you ache to see right now. And some of them are good things, some of them are not so good things. But what if we ache to see God before our feet hit the floor in the morning? All we were thinking about was just, I just want to see God today. Look at the way Jeremiah talks about it. God says, if you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. It's this idea that a lot of times we live with a divided heart. We give God just a sliver over here. I'll give you a Sunday, maybe a Wednesday. Give you a a biannual type of thing. I'm going to give you a little place there. But as long as those other appetites are there, once again, do you see how it builds? You will never be brought to a place where you want something that is not based in comfort or pleasure or just something that you want. But we have to ache to see God. And then here's another thing. Guard your heart. Guard your heart. It can so easily be turned. It can so easily become dark. It can so easily become cold and bitter. But we need to guard our hearts. I love the way it talks about it in 2 Timothy. It says, run from anything that stimulates youthful lust. Instead, pursue righteous living, faithfulness, love, and peace. Enjoy the companionship of those who call on the Lord with pure hearts. And I just want to hit a few things here. Run from anything that stimulates youthful lust. It's very different than a lot of us live. We don't run from it. We tiptoe up to it. Like, how close can I get and consider we cool, Jesus? What about now? We good? We, if I fall off the stage, it'd be bad news. Okay. (laughs) But you get the point. God says, no, 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 don't tiptoe. Don't wonder how close is the line to sin. If you want to get close to a line, get close to how close you're getting to Jesus. Get close to righteous living. He says, instead, pursue righteous living. Pursue it, not to just show up for it, not to just sit there and for waves of content to come over you, not to be entertained, not to just get a little pick-me-up, but to pursue righteous living. The way we talk it about around here is that we want to make a difference with our lives. That we, it is not wasted on us, God's love and his spirit. We are here to take the kingdom. So we are going to be servants, merciful to all. Serving in the church, outside the church, serving at our homes, with our families, at work. We are extending this righteous living every single where we go. And we want to make a difference with it. And then the, second, uh, the last one is this. Enjoy the companionship of those who call on the Lord with pure hearts. It's this idea of surrounding yourself with people that are like-minded, that have pure hearts. Because the people that you surround yourself will guide you in one direction. Like, have you ever done something dumb because you were with dumb people? (laughs) Most of my life. But if that's true, then the other side has to be true as well. If we surround ourselves with people that love Jesus, that are searching after a pure heart, that can look at me and, and challenge me and convict me when my heart is a little cynical, when I'm stumbling a little bit, they can pick me up and encourage me. The way we talk about it is a life-giving relationship. And it's something we want everyone to be able to have in a group so that you're surrounded by people that are holding you up and pushing you on and encouraging you. We got anybody here today that is in a life-giving relationship, that is in a group, that is being challenged? I know I'm in one. I got a men's group and they are some of the best men and it's helped me so much in 2021. And I'm looking ahead at 2022, ready for whatever comes. Pursue a pure heart, and that's when you get to see God. And then he says, God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. It's important here to see that this is real peace, not that illusion of peace. 
And what I mean by that is sometimes we, we consider things that are peace when it's really just an absence of conflict. Like I'm just going to go my own way. I'm just going to turn and look this way and pretend that that's not really going on. But no, it says to work for peace. A lot of times when we talk about peace, it's in this idea of does it affect me? If it does, then maybe I need to get involved. But that's not what this is. This is to be the gap, to see the chaos and the conflict of the world and to say, I'm going to step into that and I'm going to bridge people together. It reminds me of a couple weeks ago, my son, he's in first grade. He came home from school and, you know, you always try to talk to him about how was the day? What went wrong? What went great? And usually it's pretty short, like, hey, bud, how was your day? It's good. All right. Yeah. What was your favorite part? Either gym or recess. That's what it is. Well, what did you learn? What happened? Usually it's very little and we move on. But this day, something new. I said, anything happened today, bud? He said, yeah, um, something happened in the bathroom. Already, I'm full tension. This could go any way. I don't even know what's going to happen, but he's in the bathroom. He said he's in the bathroom. He's at the urinal. He's doing his business. And these two kids start getting into a fight, a real fist fight. And then one of them actually starts choking the other kid. I said, bud, what did you do? Did you step in? Did you break it up? Did you tell the teacher? He's like, no. I didn't want to get choked. I ran out of there. He's like, all right, we're going to study the Sermon on the Mount. Um, going to learn something about being a peacemaker. Um, but isn't that usually our mentality? Of like, hey, nobody's choking me. Nobody's bothering me. I'm just going to move in my own way. But God says, no, no, no that you as children of God are the only ones that have this peace, so you have to be the ones that extend it. And once again, do you see how it builds? We cannot bring peace that we don't have. I love the way Thomas Merton says it. He says, we are not at peace with others because we're not at peace with ourselves. And we're not at peace with ourselves because we are not at peace with God. It is only when we are at peace with God, can we begin to extend this kind of peace? But I just want you to know that the world does not welcome peace. You may think like, I'm gonna go out here and I'm just gonna be welcomed and high-fived when I try to help things. People do not want their lives to be disrupted. People do not want the power imbalances to be messed with. And when you try to bring peace, it is gonna bring pain. Anyone that tries to bring peace that usually comes at the cost of them. Think about Martin Luther King Jr., Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. What was he striving for? It was justice. It was peace. He wanted peace between all people. Seems legitimate. How was he met? With anger, with physical violence, with dogs, with imprisonment, and eventually with assassination. But God says, go anyway. Because we are the peacemakers. We are the children of God. We are the only ones. So go, but be prepared to suffer. Be prepared to suffer as you make peace, as you step into places that you never thought you would find yourself in. Know that it is with a purpose and it is for a reason. And I think God's setting all of this up to know the realistic idea of what's awaiting you in this kingdom. That your kingdom, God's kingdom, is being built. And it's in the midst of all of these other kingdoms that want complete opposite things from his kingdom. And it will be met with conflict and opposition. It is literally God versus the world. I'm okay with those odds. But we just need to be prepared for it. And that's what God says here in this last blessing. He says, God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you're my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. Persecution is coming. Persecution has followed followers of Jesus from the very beginning. Right now, all around the world, people are being persecuted for their faith. They are being killed. I would say in the West, for the most part, we face more of the mocking and the shame. There's a mocking that comes along with it. There's a fear that maybe you have of sharing your faith or letting a friend at work know or your boss know what you believe because you know they're going to see you maybe a little bit differently. 
And I just want to say, if you're here today and you're like, I'm in the kingdom, I believe in Jesus, but I am a little worried about how other people may take it or what it may cost me. I just want to say you should be. You should be worried. People are not going to accept, not everyone, that it will cost you something. It will cost you an opportunity at work. It will cost you a relationship, and not just romantically. I'm talking even people in your family may look at you differently because of your faith, but Jesus is saying it is worth it. And what he does is he gives a perspective that no other kingdom can possibly have because every other kingdom is live for the moment, die for today. But what we get to do is think of the world to come. And we get to think about that God is actually using us to bring this kingdom, to welcome others into it. So when we go through our lives and for sure we face uncertainty and pain and persecution and mocking and all of those things, but he says, go anyways. Because think about the world to come. This time that we're in, this short, finite moment, it'll last but just for a few years. But think of eternity. Who do you want there? And more importantly, who does God want there? And the answer is everyone. God so loved the world that he sent his only son for everyone. God wants a full house. This is the kind of kingdom that we're talking about. It is not reserved for just a few, but it is meant for everyone. And Jesus is not only the king that extends the invitation to this kingdom, he is the perfect embodiment of all of these blessings. All the way from the poor, he emptied himself out and became a human. To the morning, he was despised a man of sorrow. You can go all the way through it, all the way down to the mocking and the persecution. That he faced all of it, stripped of everything, hung on a cross, persecuted for me and you. How did he do that? How did he face all of that? How did he go through that persecution? He had a different perspective. He had his eyes on the kingdom of heaven. Look at what it says. In Hebrews, it says, We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith because of the joy awaiting him. He endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he's seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. The same can be said about me and you. That God is extending this invitation to come into his kingdom and to live as a student of Jesus. Do you understand? This has always been the plan. Jesus, after he conquered the grave and as he ascended into heaven, his last word, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, he says, all authority has been given to me over heaven and earth. And here's what I want. I want you to go and make disciples, classes in session, and do what? Teach them. Teach them to obey all that I have commanded. And then what does he say? Be sure of this. I will be with you until the end of time. Here's the amazing thing. All of those things may seem overwhelming to you. You may wonder, I don't know if I can live that out. The truth of the matter is when you're welcomed into the kingdom of God, God gives you his very spirit to live this out. He is there to encourage you, to guide you, to shape you, to mold you into the image of Jesus. That when we come out from here, this space where we gather together and we worship, we leave. And when we leave, heaven invades this planet. It is an upside down kingdom where heaven works its way from the ground up. God is building his church. You are his disciples. You are his students. And we are to go, to go and to bring his kingdom and welcome everyone in. And if there's anyone here today wondering, I don't know about me. I don't know if this is for me. I don't know if I can step into that with everything that I've done. Please see this invitation comes exactly to you. You're the perfect person to receive it if you're thinking this isn't for me. If you're thinking, I don't know if I'm good enough, this is for you. And the truth is, the good news is that good. Our God is that good. He loves you that much. This is what it is to be fully human. 
This is what it is to be fully alive, to join God on his mission. I'm gonna ask everyone to stand up in this moment. Everyone at all of our campuses. This is the part where we come together, we stir one another up. We look to God's word and we are challenged and convicted. And then what's our response? We've only got one move. It's the song we were singing earlier, a gratitude that we've come to the end of ourselves and we know this is only possible if you send your blessing, if you fill us with your spirit. We got nothing to bring but a hallelujah, a celebration of who you are. And that is all that you want. So what I wanna do is just pray for us right now and we're gonna go into a time of worship. Pray with us. God, we thank you so much for today. God, we thank you for your kingdom. We thank you that you've blown the doors wide open and invited all of us in. And God, I pray as we come, as poor as we come, as sad as we come, as humble as we come, as hungering and thirsting as we come, as merciful as we come. God, as peaceful as we come, God, you would ignite a fire within us, that you would convict us, that you would do a spiritual heart surgery on us, that you would bring us to this place right now as we stand in rooms all over the city and all over the world, not puffed up, but God, we come to you as poor beggars, knowing that we have nothing to offer you but a hallelujah, a celebration, a praise, a dependence on you alone and your generosity. So God, I pray that we fill these rooms. I pray that we shake these walls. God, I pray that everyone knows that there is a lion inside of their lungs. Don't get shy now, but God, we're gonna lift up your name. We're gonna celebrate you from a place of gratitude, of thankfulness. Jesus, we love you. King Jesus, it is yours and yours alone. Amen.